Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, I'm Zivi Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This 30-minute podcast features a new author interviewed by me every single day, 365 days a year for about 30 minutes. I am also the publisher for Zibby Books, which publishes 12 books a year in fiction and memoir. Our books are already out now. And you can check it out on zibbybooks.com. And we have a magazine called Zibby Mag, where we have lots of wonderful essays and lifestyle features. That's at zibbymag.com. We have classes at zibbyclasses.com. And I recently opened a bookstore in LA called Zibby's Bookshop at 1113 Montana Avenue at 11th Street in San Monica. I hope that you are able to enjoy some of our other offerings. But this here podcast is the basis of all of it and started in 2018. And no matter what I do, this is basically my favorite thing. Enjoy. John Manuel Arias is the author of Where There Was Fire. He is a queer Costa Rican American poet and writer. He is a Canto Mundo Fellow and alumnus of the Tin House Summer Writers Workshop. His prose and poetry have been published in Pink, The Rumpus, Friction, Joyland Magazine, and Akashic Books. He has lived in Washington, D.C., Brooklyn, New York, and in San Jose, Costa Rica, with his grandmother and four ghosts. Where There Was Fire is his first novel. Welcome, John Manuel. Congratulations on your book, Where There Was Fire, a novel. This book is so beautiful. Oh my gosh, what a work of art. 
Wow. Thank you so much. I appreciate all of the support and all of the kind words. It's really meant a lot. I was trying to describe your book over lunch yesterday to my colleagues. And I was like, no, it's like Gabriel Garcia Marquez meets like modern day, maybe memoir. Maybe this is his family. I don't even know. It's like, the anyway, I was trying to encapsulate just and the most lyrical, beautiful language. Anyway, maybe you should do a better job and explain <laughs> the actual plot, which of course I know, but you know, go ahead. Well, thank you. So in 1968 in Costa Rica, there is sort of this sinister American fruit company and its most lucrative banana plantation burns to the ground. And with that burning plantation goes the future of a family of Costa Rican women. 30 years later, we have our matriarch, Teresa. She is haunted by the ghost of her mother, a missing husband, and she is estranged from her eldest daughter, Lita. And during a freak hurricane, they have to reconnect in order to build a future together before it's too late. There you go. See, I knew you'd have a better summary. (laughs) (laughs) One of the most sort of pivotal things around which I feel a lot of the book centers or sort of orbits is the death by suicide of Carmen and what that, I'm not giving anything away because it happens early, right? Are we okay it to talk about It does happen pretty early. It's really funny. I've said it before and people are like, no, no spoiler alert. I'm like, it happens within the first 15 pages. <laughs> yeah. I feel like it's okay. I'm, I mean, I think this is fair game, but anyway, um, if you don't want to hear what happens in the first 15 pages, just fast forward, I guess like five minutes or something, but it's really the ramifications of this sudden and unexpected loss that drive several people to either mutism or you know, complete mental disrepair or that has such profound effects as any loss, particularly a death by suicide does. Talk to me about that and how, I know we have the whole backstory of their lives and everything in Costa Rica, but how that moment, how you chose to make that moment a pivotal point, like where it came from. I don't know. Talk about it. (laughs) So something kind of funny is that everyone in my family is currently reading the novel. It is out. They're excited. They have the arc or whatever it is. And people will identify themselves between Lira and Carmen. And so my aunt will be like, well, I'm Lira. And my sister is Carmen. And my sister was like, I'm Lira and you're Carmen. And I'm like, am I prone to suicide? (laughs) It's a very intense sort of embodiment, right? And Carmen is a very sensitive person. She has always been sensitive since she was a little girl. She could hear other people's thoughts and feel their emotions. And that's a lot of weight. Mm -hmm. And during the tragic night in 1968, there separates something from her. Mm -hmm. And she goes throughout the rest of her life, haunted and unable to sort of reconcile it within herself and she tries and she tries and after the birth of her son she enters a state of postpartum depression and it just becomes much too overwhelming for her and so those with traumatic histories are more prone to postpartum depression are more prone to suicidal ideations and i really wanted to document that and i thought that it was important for lita it was important for Teresa to rattle their relationship mm-hmm. once more to see how much it could take. Wow. Yeah. And then you have the foil of Christina, the neighbor who's like on the outside looking all social ID and happy and whatever. But of course she has her own demons and her own troubled marriage and Des- Desiderio, right? Who yeah. if 
feels these effects forever. And then you get to watch as they all sort of age together and what that means and that feeling of responsibility and friendship versus enmity or whatever. And how, you know, that complexity of female friendship too. Where are you getting all this? This is amazing. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing. (laughs) I mean, I've always lived with women, Mm -hmm. my mother, my sister. And for four years, I lived with my grandmother in Costa Rica. And that was full time. My three great aunts were living there as well. And so these different dynamics of generational dynamics and also this friendship. And is there a little bit of animosity between family members or between friends? And it really played out in the novel in the way that I wanted to put these characters through these obstacles between themselves, between each other to sort of explore what they would do. And so, you know, friendship is such an interesting place to be, an interesting sort of clay to manipulate. Mm. And it was very fun to have Teresa, who is much more reticent, who is unable to reconcile the past outwardly, with Cristina, who is still stuck to the socialite status, who is still stuck to, my life is perfect. I live in a very rich house. My husband was a sculptor. He molded my hips out of marble. And so they're both unable to let go of the past, but they express it in different ways. Mm -hmm. And this also causes this sort of like frenemy dynamic between them, but the love that they share. Mm -hmm. You know, I want the reader to take away the amount of love that these characters have for each other because it's there. That's why they're so hurt, right? They wouldn't have been so hurt if their love wasn't so deep. Well, I feel like their relationship speaks to this sort of bigger theme of really responsibility. Like, what is your responsibility to your good friends? What is the country's responsibility to its workers? What is a parent's responsibility to a child? And all these things are people sort of not exercising what should be their responsibility and what happens when all of that falls to pieces and all of the sort of Aaron Brockovich style sort of under Uh, investigative was really interesting too. Tell me more about all of that. Totally. I love that. Actually, it was a great movie. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Two left feet and effing ugly shoes. Great line. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like I said, a lot of people are unable to let go of the past, Mm -hmm. just like we in real life are often unable to let go of the past. And so Lita expresses it in being incredibly curious about the night where this banana plantation burned and the parallel of her family being ruined. And in order to understand emotionally what happened, because she cannot speak to her mother, So she cannot access the emotional sort of familial history at this point. She turns to the actual history, which is gossip columns of why the banana plantation burned to the ground, newspaper clipping, sort of first person narratives. And she's desperate. And one day she finds, I don't know if this is too much of a spoiler. Let's just not say one day she finds something. Yeah. one One day she finds something that is the clue that she needed. Mm -hmm. which is the spark that she needed in order to light this fire within herself and understand and illuminate what she needed. When did you think of that piece of it? Or how did did all of this come come together? So there is this fabulous book out of Duke University Press called Banana Wars. 
And there was an anthropologist who went to Costa Rica. He was interested in the banana plantations, the leftover United Fruit Company plantations and the workers to interview them. And finally, when these Costa Rican workers trusted this white guy enough, they said, hey, we got a box of memos here. We have a box of uh, United Fruit Company memos. And they go back 100 years and they reveal this very, you know, I said the word sinister, this very intricate conspiracy of organized assassinations, of uh, quelling of revolts, of ways to manipulate workers. And it's all there in black and white that they're just admitting. And it is because some Costa Rican foreman decided not to destroy this box of documents, it's revealed how we Latin Americans knew. We knew the meddling. We were well aware of it. Mm. But now it's for all the world to see. You know, it is from the horse's mouth and it is sort of fascinating. And so what is what can be done now? I mean, I know you're approaching it in fiction and getting even more people to know about it, which is wonderful. But don't you feel like, you know, now what? Like what? No, it's true. (laughs) I mean, so there is this very infamous pesticide known in Costa Rica and Nicaragua and parts of Central America known as Nemegon. And it was used by Standard Fruit Company, which is the dull bananas. And it was known, it was told to them through empirical evidence that it was sterilizing male workers. And instead of allowing Dow to discontinue, they sued them for everything that they had. And they used Nebigon for another 10 years. And it sterilized 30,000 workers. Oh my gosh. So they've tried for the last 50 years to litigate across countries from Costa Rica to Cote d'Ivoire, from people in California. It was used in California. It is still in the water tables in California. And it's this conversation that's very hushed. And that's the point because these lawyers, you know, besides organizing assassinations, the lawyers of these fruit companies are so powerful. They have overwhelming power. Mm -hmm. And so it's a conversation that is intentionally silenced. And if I can publish this book, if I can start a little bit of a conversation, if I can tell someone, or if they could read the novel and say, huh, Nemegon is a very evil name. Mm. I wonder what it is. And they Google and they find this history. How does that radicalize them in the same way that it radicalized me? How does it start that conversation? And once we're confronted with it, there is something to do. But I only have the power to sort of spark that conversation. Or that is the way that I feel that I can. Yeah. Well, that is a lot of power. I, I hope mean, so. it's pretty good. I, I really hope so. I mean, it's been uh, super surprising. Like I said, these lawyers are very powerful. And the fact that they've let my novel get this far mm. is kind of bananas to me. <laughs> to use a fruit reference. And- yeah, <laughs> it is a little bananas to me, very honestly. When I went back to Costa Rica in April... I was telling everybody, of course, about this novel and about the nature of this pesticide. And they said, they're going to put you in jail. Oh boy! You know, in Latin America, we know the consequences of going mm-hmm. against something that's powerful. But here, you know, th- there is a little bit of uh, maybe unfounded paranoia. But I do know that historically, something like this couldn't really have happened. 
So for anyone listening, if John Manuel ends up missing suddenly or something untoward happens, you heard it here first. (laughs) No, literally. Right, right, right. Exactly. I mean, you know, if I disappear one day, book sales. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Actually, that's a, that's an interesting book in and of itself. I mean, everyone is asking for a sequel. It's really funny. Everyone is asking for a sequel, and I never thought of that. You know, Cristina Garcia just published a sequel of Dreaming in Cuban, mm. Vanishing Maps, and it took her about 20 years to even sort of think about it. And so who knows, 2020 or 2043... <laughs> Sequel to Where There's Fire. <laughs> I'll, save, I'll save you a podcast spot. <laughs> oh my gosh. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Well, I know we've spoken a lot about that element of it, but I feel like that's almost in the background to the relationships and the interplay of all of the women and even the mental health aspect of the book and how you have us you know, enter into a church-run mental health asylum. And I guess this is another way that, you know, the country is sort of shirking responsibility, but, you know, what was to happen with the, this whole class of people who were resistant or there weren't the meds at the time and what do you yeah. do with them and what do you do when a loved one is there and all of that. Was this research-based as well? Like, does this from a pocket of history and you wanted to explore it? Like, and just how is all of this, like, how did, all, which pieces of this instigated the whole novel writing process or did it all just sort of come together as you got going? I'll answer the last part first. There was so much research involved. There were so many trips. Yeah. Even before I lived with my grandmother, I started this novel. You know, I wrote the first sentence in 2009. And throughout college, I worked on it and it called to me and it wouldn't let me sleep. And so I had to go back to Costa Rica. I had to do research and even something just as simple as taking a ride with my grandmother to visit where my great aunt, who was a nun, used to work. Mm. Even those things are research. Even those things bubble up into a novel, right? It's not just all essays or anthropological accounts. But mental health has always been 
very important to me as, you know, a disability right. And with Costa Rica, you know, a lot of readers might find this novel a little chocable is the word in Spanish. And I'm trying to think of the, the <laughs> word in English. Um, but they might sort of clash with it a little bit because there's a huge geographical and there's a huge generational sort of gap that one has to jump. And so a Costa Rican can absolutely jump in and say, oh, of course, the government didn't handle mental health at all. We as a culture have not talked about mental health at all, especially women's mental health, right? Women are held to a standard in Costa Rica where they have to be graceful and always put together and they have to be the perfect mother and they have to be the perfect homemaker. They're not, you know, patriarchy doesn't allow them room to express any sort of mental health concerns or mental illness, right? Which is very important to treat which is where Godwin came in as well, right? But that was always a very important thing for me to go through, to portray as something that happens, that it is valid to give enough space and generosity as the novel could to these women and to allow them to live and breathe and live authentically. Well, I can totally see why people are asking for a sequel because the characters are just so real and the way you kind of go through different perspectives and different timelines. And there's even one passage that I'd like to read that shows what a fabulous writer you are and the way that you really take us into the scenes, into the place and feel it and smell it. So this was Christina Barrio Avila, 1995, forgive my accent. An aberrant hurricane arrived on Tuesday morning. Rain swelled and burst from the sky, forcing bright-beaked birds to seek refuge in car mufflers underneath bromeliad umbrellas or inside crowded chicken coops. No one in Costa Rica knew exactly when morning had actually begun because roosters, distracted by the storm or by the bright-beaked invaders, forgot to crow. Vendors tried and failed to open their stands. Beggars filled their empty cups with clinking hail. Politicians stayed secure in the warmth of their canopy beds. The old women who once danced for rain had indeed been right, as always. But who could remember the last time a hurricane had fluttered its heavy body this far south? So beautiful. Thank you. Oh my gosh. I mean, you just go on and on. Here, just this last one. In Barrio Avila, the ruins of LaGuardia Railroad, I'm sorry for butchering your language, became a violent no, river of, <laughs> became a violent river of rainwater. From the current emerged a cartel of cane toads, gray and bulbous as the clouds. They hopped out of the river as triumphantly as the first organisms to haul themselves out of the sea and made their way beneath the rickety doors of concrete houses. Once inside, they deflated their bodies and scrounged for any unfortunate bugs that might have sought the same sanctuary. I mean, how great is that? You basically just told us about a frog, right? Why would I care about, you know what I mean? Like I, I, now all of a sudden I'm really caring. I'm in the perspective of a flattening frog underneath a house. Like that is so cool that you do that because you can feel everything. Anyway, how did you learn to write? Did you teach yourself to write? Like, <laughs> what, how did, how did, did you always write like this? Tell me more about that. Well, thank you. So besides starting this novel when I was much younger, I was always attracted to poetry. I always read, you know, I actually didn't start reading sort of intentionally until I was in late high school and college. You know, academics and literature and me have always had a bit of a clash to bring back the word <laughs> chocante. But in college, I was allowed the freedom to actually read who I wanted to read. Mm -hmm. So I could read Edwidge Dantepot 
and sort of leave Jane Austen behind. Sorry, Jane Austen fan, <laughs> but she just wasn't for me. Uh, she didn't speak to my sort of literary heritage, right? My literary legacy. And I could read these writers and I could, you know, all writers, I think at the very beginning, we mimic or mm-hmm. we evoke the style of other writers. And a huge one that actually gave me a lot of permission was Arundhati Roy in The God of Small Things. Mm -hmm. And the way that she plays with language, the way that she takes a colonial language and she makes it her own. Mm -hmm. So fascinating. Like a poet, you take language and you mold it to what you need it to be. You create new words, right? You use alliteration in order to hop a reader throughout a sentence. You add momentum, you add sort of a different dynamic and it is so much to start and stop. And that was always very fascinating to me about language. And so as much as I could play, right, there's joy, there's so much joy in writing in the way that you can play that I think I've always been like that. And so a lot of people, a lot of other writers gave my work a lot of permission in order to grow. Wow. That's amazing. What advice do you have for aspiring authors? Keep at it, but also be strategic. To be a writer is, you know, I think there are very few writers who want to do it out of fun. A lot of us definitely want to become authors Mm -hmm. and there is a way to do it strategically. Before and After the Book Deal by Courtney Mom is a really fantastic book. She really she did it for the culture. She did it for all of us. Thank you, Courtney. Shout out. And just doing your own research. And a lot of people submit to literary magazines because it's a really great way to get your start, right? It's a really great way to access other writers as well. But they do so... I've I've seen the logic that the point is to receive 100 rejections and that lets the one acceptance be special. It's like, Mm -hmm. no, 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 no. You look for the acceptance. (laughs) You know, if there are 100 rejections, you're doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. You are not listening to the journal. You are not following its guidelines. You're not in conversation with the other writers in the issue. So the point is not to shotgun everything, just like it is with agents, just like it is with editors. You have to be strategic and you have to look for your own success. Because no one is going to help you as a writer. There, there might be friends. There might be people in the industry who you are connected with, but... Being an author is a very solitary act, not just writing at our desks, but also when we're trying to navigate this industry, right? All of us are different and success looks different for all of us. So sit back, analyze, really take stock of what success looks like to you and the best route you can get there. Yeah. Love it. Excellent advice. Okay. Well, if it's not a sequel, quick preview into what's coming next from you. Any ideas? Well, novel two might be done with novel three in the chamber. Wow. I will say that novel two deals much more with brotherhood and with revenge and destiny and a river full of man-eating crocodiles. Whoa. Okay. That was a very good teaser. (laughs) (laughs) It's the crocodiles. The, The crocodiles are really, really, really great. Who doesn't love them? They're terrifying. Totally. John Manuel, thank you so much. Congratulations again on Where There Was Fire. So beautiful. And I feel like we'll be reading it in English class. My kids will be reading it in English class many years from now. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for the generosity again. I appreciate it. No problem. All right. Have a great day. Okay. You too. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.